installment of a franchise. This is episode 25, Book Club Clip Show. I'm your host, Mike, and welcome to this very special episode. You know, there was a time on this show where I would read from passages of the movie novelizations, but over time, it became increasingly more difficult to find the time to do so, and thus, Book Club was canceled. Now, Third Times a Book, or Book Club, may be dead, but it's not forgotten. And there's always an outside chance of zombie book club rising from the grave. But until then, I figured I'd throw together some of my favorite book club moments from some past episodes and present them here for you as a special clip show episode. Now, since this is a very special episode devoted entirely to the memory of book club, there will be no no part three. But I'll be back between clips to say hello and present the next reading. So sit back, turn off that movie, and crack a book. Our first passage is from the very first episode of Third Time's a Charm, Superman 3, with special guest, Podfather himself, Joey Lewandowski. Have a listen. I've got a little bit of a segment here that I'm going to try out with you. I love it. Let's do it. I don't know exactly where this idea came from, but... What well, I... No, I, I know exactly where this idea came from. Is when we were doing Cage Club, at oh, yeah, the yeah. time we, we would watch another movie, we'd be like, shit, this was adapted from a book, too. And right. for some reason, as though what we were doing wasn't unhealthy enough as it is, you were like, what if we had a book club where we read the books these movies were based on? <laughs> and I was like, you can do that. I'm not doing that. And then so I think since then, for the last two and a half years, you've had in your brain, let's not just watch movies and talk about them. Let's also read the books that these <laughs> movies are not even based on, but like either based on or like the novelization of. That's what's even crazier is like somewhere this idea got totally deformed. I'm not even reading the book that movies were based on. I'm reading the books that were based on the movies. Yeah. So these are novelizations of the feature films. Superman 3, the novelization is terrible. Did you read the whole thing? I read the whole thing. Who wrote it? Is it somebody you know? Never heard of this guy, William Knotswinkle. That's a great name. Doesn't sound real. Novelizations were huge when I was a kid. I mean, I remember buying a couple of them and never reading them, but just wanting to own them because I liked the movie. I had the Batman novelization. I had the Back to the Future 2 novelization. I haven't even necessarily been reading all that much the last year or two, but I've decided to pick up these novelizations. And what's great and terrible about these at the same time is you get all of the inner dialogue. Of Superman or of every character? Well, okay, so it starts out mostly with Gus. This is Gus's book as okay. it's his movie. Sure. You get a little bit of Clark, some really weird sprinkles of ancillary characters such as the guy who almost runs over Ricky from Smallville. You get like an actual backstory about how he was hung over the night before and fell asleep at the wheel in the book, not in the movie. Okay. The more you go into this book, the less you get of inner dialogue and elaboration, and it just basically just turns into like a recap screenplay, which is kind of hilarious to read in and of itself. I just wanted to read to you some of this terrible book, so... But here's a little bit of what Gus has going on. Page 29. Gus had built shortwave radios as a boy to monitor police progress in the neighborhood. When his uncle brought home a stolen adding machine, Gus had taken it completely... Hold on, hold on, hold on, I'm sorry. You're introducing a thieving black man already? Like Page 29. Wow, okay, sorry. Gus had taken it completely apart and put it back together again. When his father threw a saxophone through the TV screen, he'd been able to replace the tubes. Then he'd wired his own snooping device and lowered it into the bedroom of the call girl living below, which what? brought him to the attention of her boyfriend, a local gangland kingpin who what? gave him work as a wiretapper. Gus might have made a career of this, but after his employer was thrown off a building, Gus drifted out of electronics. His natural engineering ability faded into the background, except for an astonishing skill with video games. Those devious pathways seemed obvious to him. His Pac-Man scores were phenomenal, but of little social value. Kitchen technician had become his career until now. This is... I don't... <laughs> I'm already done with this book. How many pages is this? It's hundreds of pages it's, long. It's 220 pages. I love that this is how you got back into reading this. <laughs> is reading the novelization of Superman 3. 
This is some of Clark's inner monologue. This is all you need to know about Kent himself. This is Clark. I mean, okay, so here's a question for you. Does the novel distinguish between Clark's inner monologue and Superman's inner monologue? No. Or they're the same? It's the same. He always thinks as Superman. He's Kal-El, basically. Yeah, he's never calling himself, but he's thinking as Superman, the alien. Okay. Always questioning why he doesn't fit in, all that kind of stuff. Here we go. Page 52. So why, you may be wondering, did the Man of Steel suffer these vague anxieties? Wasn't he, after all, able to leap this building in a single bound? The problem was, the role he played for so long of bumbling blockhead had solidified around him. He said and did things which weren't him at all, but which helped him get along, helped him to mingle with humanity. Did people need flattery? Fine, he'd flatter them. Did they need to feel superior to someone? Good, they could feel superior to him. Did they need someone to dump on now and then? Fine, they could dump on Clark Kent. All of this had not left the Man of Steel unscarred. That's really sad. It's so sad, dude. (laughs) Like, Clark is suffering. It's something you never really get from the films that I feel like they wanted to portray with the new movies is, like, Superman makes you feel better than him or something. Like, Clark makes you realize you're a better person. You know, you could look at Clark Kent and be like, at least I'm not Clark Kent. Yeah. So, like, it's really strange that he had sort of locked himself in this role. But at the same time, I don't know, reboot yourself. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I mean, dude, you've been Superman for 10 years. You need an image change anyway. What's actually really kind of remarkable about that passage you just read is that it makes Superman more human than any of the seven Superman movies that have come out. Then you'll love this passage. I okay. think this is my favorite passage of all of them. Page 65. Lana asks, you never married? Kent shrugged. I came close. The folly of past intimacy with Lois Lane pricked his conscience now. He'd thrown his great strength away like an old suit for the sake of one night's embrace, for the feeling of being just a man, not Superman. That was the law, that if he truly loved a mortal woman, he must forsake his cosmic power. Gladly he had forsaken it for Lois Lane, and the very next day, a truck driver had beaten the living crap out of him. No, he must not let that happen again. What? (laughs) So in Superman 2... Where he have you seen, seen Superman? Yes. He relinquishes his powers yes. in the Krypton machine, the Red Sun thing, gets his ass kicked at a diner. Apparently, it still weighs heavy on his mind to the point that he Poor will not Clark. be intimate with anybody. Wow. On page eighty-five, Richard Pryor refers to someone as a jazzbo. Well, that is. I have no idea what that is. Probably sort of racist. There's a lot of Clark stuff, like when he's eating the pate. It's a lot more of like, oh, I can't tell because I'm an alien. Is this pate or is it dog oh, food? Okay, since this is one of the best sequences in the movie, I got to read the ATM guy because this blew my mind. I was reading this, this part. This is the same guy who is at, who's taking money out, and then before he leaves, another wad of money comes out and it keeps coming out. That guy? Exactly. Okay. Let's see. Page 118. As he hooked into what he thought was aerospace program, another computer far away clicked on. It was housed inside a bank, and just outside that bank, a man was withdrawing his plastic bank card from his pocket and walking toward the instant cash machine in the bank wall. I just want to talk about how that is literally just like describing (laughs) the process of a guy going to take out money, but okay. He had exactly 50 bucks left in his account and was about to withdraw it in order to engage in one last bout of reckless spending before jumping off a bridge with a horse weight tied to his ankle. Wow. Wow. That guy is the most interesting guy in this book. The movie should be about that guy at the ATM. A suicidal, reckless spender who is saved by the drunken antics of Richard Pryor. Wow! If you could imagine how fast this scene is in the movie and what I'm about to read to you, when Superman is uh, presented with the key to Smallville. So here you go. (laughs) Mayor Ed Fogarty was clearing his throat at the microphone. Superman, he said, turning toward the Man of Steel, we all know you're not looking for honors and awards. Mayor Fogarty was not looking for honors either, having recently been indicted by the grand jury in a price-fixing scandal. What?! And with much to hide as regards certain construction contracts he'd recently awarded, Mayor Honest Ed Fogarty sought only to draw attention away from himself and onto anyone else. The mayor of this honest small town is in a major price-fixing scandal and being indicted. I don't... well, why? Why is that in the book? So chapter 16 is the evil Superman chapter okay. where he fights himself. That That's the one, if you ever pass this book on a shelf somewhere, that you're probably going to want to read. I can almost promise you that's never going to happen. <laughs> okay, so here's just a little bit of Dark Superman that I thought was actually kind of cool. This is one of the things maybe this novel does right, that it elaborates a little more on the mind of evil Superman. Okay. Page 157. He flew through the night sky, across time zones of the ocean, flying aimlessly, trying to sort out his thoughts. 
the great sea heaved beneath him, its powers like his own, vast, incalculable. Mysterious in origin and destiny, he flew and feasted his eyes on his temptuous nature, and he exalted to know that he was the same, unpredictable, and to be turned by no man's hand. I rule this planet, he said to himself as he flew. He's really got a god complex. I mean, but we know that he has a god complex, but, like, it's amazing that this book does things better than any of the movies, but I guess that's also the benefit of the book. But also the fact that, like, the novelization of Superman 3 is getting Superman right is bananas to me. Those were some passages from the Superman 3 novelization. What a crazy novelization. Coming up next is the Rocky 3 episode, with none other than the Hoff Bros themselves, Brian and Kyle. Make sure you check out their show, PSI Love Hoffman and PSI Still Love Hoffman. And get ready now to listen to some excerpts from Rocky Three. episodes I've called this segment Book Club, which totally defines what it is, but it's kind of boring. I'm trying out a new name for this segment, Third Time's a Book. (laughs) (laughs) How'd you come up with that one? Basically what I've done is read the novelization of Rocky Three. That's impressive. Rocky Three is the shortest of the books so far, 152 pages. Basically, guys, what I'm going to do is I have marked some passages, which I'm going to read to you, and I just want to get your general response. And now why I'm doing this is because it gives us the opportunity to sort of get inside the heads a little more of some of these characters, maybe go a little deeper beyond the film. This segment has been uh, met with mixed results so far, so I'm going to read a bunch of passages. Here's a little bit of Polly for you guys. And by the way, Polly is all over this book. It's like almost the Polly story. Really? Yeah, there's so much about Polly, it's unnecessary. I find him interesting. He just wants a job. So here's a little bit of Polly, page 11. So this is in the beginning of the movie. Polly was surprised at how unsteady his footing was as he weaved his way to the door. He hadn't had that many beers, certainly not enough to cause a shifting floor. In the old days, he used to be able to drink a case without taking a leak. He was famous for it, like Rocky eating raw eggs. Mounted next to the door was a huge Easter Seals poster depicting a life-size Rocky in boxing regalia with his arm around a little boy. Emblazoned at the bottom was the motto of the poster, Give a kid a fighting chance. Pauly laughed bitterly. You have to be a cripple or a retard before anybody helped you in this world. That's Pauly for you guys. Was Pauly roofied? Is that what they're alluding to? He's drunk. He's drunk and he resents Rocky's success. Uh, I mean, not to not to go back to the movies that are on the book segment, but, like, the music that they play when he's drunk is just so... <laughs> it's just, like, weird strings, like... Oh. Yeah. Here's a part of a deleted scene before Rocky has to go pick up Paulie at the police station in the beginning of the film. He's in his study, and he's sort of, like, studying, like, how to talk and stuff. <laughs> this, Yeah, this I'm very curious about. Hooked on phonics. Hooked on phonics. Page 17. He finished the drill, then rewound the tape and played it back. It didn't sound bad, he thought, smiling. Not real good, but not bad. The smile grew as he continued to listen. What would his fans think if they could see him now? they think he was crazy. Maybe they were right, but he didn't care. All he knew was that he wasn't the same man he had been three years ago when he'd won the championship. Nobody was. Everything changed. Or died. (laughs) He loved South Street, but there wasn't any reason to drag it with him for the rest of his life. He snapped off the recorder, removed his glasses, and massaged the bridge of his nose. Surprise registered on his face as he noticed how dark it was. He glanced at his watch. Enough of this. He was a married man with a family, not a bookworm. (laughs) It was time to go to bed. To be beside Adrian. He pushed his chair back from the desk and walked over to the bookshelves that lined an entire wall of the room. The shelves were crammed with works ranging from Shakespeare to Spallini. Most of the bindings were new and clean, untouched. The fact that Rocky hadn't read the books didn't detract from his appreciation of them. They looked great lined up, all neat and orderly on the shelves. Besides, he had read one of the Spallini books. It was a start. Oh. Oh, wow. We got, you guys, we need to collaborate on something and use the line, I'm a man with a family, not a bookworm. That is fantastic. It's one of the best lines I've ever heard in my life. Yeah, I like it. Here's some clever lying stuff. This is during the charity event. 
page 37. All of a sudden, there was a commotion outside the ring. Electric flashes popped away like mad as the photographers hurriedly snapped pictures. Rocky turned in time to see Clubber Lang push his way through and step up to ringside. Photographs of Clubber made him look mean, but in person he emitted a blunt, horrifying brutality. His eyes were dark and cruel. Sweat beaded on the broad planes of his face. The dark bristles of his mohawk hairstyle sprouted from his otherwise shaved head like an upturned scimitar. He scowled at the people surrounding him, and they involuntarily drew back. This author is just, I mean, fantastic with his detail. I didn't think that was terrible. It gets you a little bit into the mind of Clubber. Not that we didn't know it already, but... So far, like, to me, the thing that's done the most justice to me is, like, the fact that Rocky was reading. Because among, like, Rocky fans, that's, like, a big continuity error. He can't even finish a commercial in Rocky 2. And in Rocky 3, he's on The Muppet Show. So I'm glad to know he was practicing. Clubber, like, I don't think this adds much because we knew this about him. But here's some Thunderlips. Page 41. At first, all that was visible was a mass of shimmering blonde hair towering above the surging crowd. As the entourage neared ringside, the security personnel held back the crowd and Thunderlips became fully visible. He was over seven feet tall. The shimmering blonde hair turned out to be a white, wide-brimmed hat partially covering a golden mane that flowed to his shoulders. Huge <laughs> mirrored sunglasses hit his eyes and a white satin cape billowed behind him. In his hand, he gripped a white whip. Behind him, Daphne and Dora held up the ends of his cape. Doreen followed, fanning him with ostrich plumes. The slave girls were smiling. Thunderlips scowled. The fans roared louder. Thunderlips scowled more. There was nothing that he liked better than a successful entrance. Daphne, Dora, and Doreen. I like it. Wonderful. I am sold. Hooked. We didn't get sunglasses in the movie, I don't think, though, right? No, no. Yeah, and you know what else? In the movie, Mickey is put into a mausoleum wall, if I'm not mistaken, and in the book, he's buried. So there's a difference there, too. So my guess is, and I'm sure this is something you've seen from novelizations, or you will see, is that the novelizations are done usually, a lot of them, while they're filming. And, like, Stallone probably gave him the script, and there was probably a burial in the script, and these are, like, the things we're not seeing are probably, like, last-minute changes. Like, they probably decided to, again, put Mickey in, in the mausoleum. Yeah, in the making of, on YouTube, from making of Rocky Three, you can see Stallone say the script is never done. It's constantly being worked on. Here's uh, page 57, chapter 5. The kitchen occupies a place of prominence in an Italian household. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Done. I love it. Yeah, that's the end. Don't read anymore. I just wanted to read that because, you know, as an Italian-American, <laughs> I thought it was quite hilarious. Oh, man, I love it. So this is a little bit of Adrian here. We get a little insight into how Adrian's thinking. She can't sleep. It's the night before the first fight. Page 80. The luminous dial of the clock read three o'clock. She gently removed Rocky's arm and eased out of bed. He slept on, oblivious to her absence. She felt like a mother as she watched his sleeping form. His hands crept down between his knees and he curled into an embryotic position. My baby, <laughs> my lover. Oh my god, oh my god. Until she had met Rocky, it had never occurred to her that she would have either. The walls of the apartment oh, and the pet shop had been the perimeter of her tiny world. She remembered him coming into the shop and buying the turtles Cuff and Link. He had scared her. He had looked so big and powerful. But even then, she had sensed a lonely gentleness behind his strong facade. And when he'd kept coming back to amuse her with his clumsy jokes and sheepish grin, she'd felt an excitement she'd never known before. But she hadn't allowed herself to believe that he had actually cared for her. What could any man see in her? She was a dull and drab and black and white photo in a world of color television sets, as Polly had constantly reminded her. <laughs> so I don't need to keep going what on there. What a misogynistic but... passage. Oh my god. That's also like a writer that's trying to give like a little bit more understanding to a character that, again, like doesn't have much to do in this movie. Obviously it's like completely, like Brian just said, misogynistic and that kind of stuff, but like it's just... Oh. I mean, I'm, again, I'm happy this exists. When you showed me the cover of this, I was like, this mm -hmm. is amazing. This is just amazing. Well, I know exactly why. It's for passages like this on page 101. Rocky sat in the darkened gym. He knew that his life had to change. This wasn't healthy for him, and it wasn't fair to Adrian. He could feel her wince whenever she looked at him now. It made him want to get out of the house, which only exasperated the problem. Things couldn't go on this way. He had too much to lose, and so many ways to lose it. But it was nice sitting at Goldman's gym, remembering. He'd been 15 years old the first time he'd entered the building. 
Mickey had taken the cigar out of his mouth and asked him his name. Robert Balboa, but my friends call me Rocky. Like a Marciano? Yeah. We'll see. Rocky snapped back to reality, disgusted by himself. That was a large part of the problem. He couldn't focus on reality. He was wasting too much time on memories. He stood up and walked over to the speed bag. He took a long, lazy swipe at it. That's not the way you do it, a voice called out. Startled, Rocky uh, yes. whipped around. A vague figure stood in the shadows. The figure stepped forward. Who's that? Rocky called. Apollo stepped out of the shadows into the murky gray surrounding Rocky. Hit it straight. Lean into it. Apollo? That's right. I've been waiting at your house for an hour, Apollo continued. Your wife said you might be here. Nice, nice. That actually played pretty well in book form, if you ask yeah, me. Yeah, I like that one. It, it's it's good. It, it's, again, we had the introduction to Apollo. There's also, like, a veiled criticism of Sylvester Stallone here, I think. Just the fact that, like, leaning too much on the past in these films. But I like that passage. I think it played well because it was, like, closer to, like, reading a screenplay than it was a novel. <laughs> Which most of novelizations feel like you're reading a screenplay, for the most part. Yeah. By the way... Manzi, kudos on your Burgess Meredith and your <laughs> Ro- Ro- Robert Rocky Bubble. I never knew his name was Robert. Yeah, it reveals it a couple times. I think that's something I've never caught before. But Manzi, you do have you do have to work harder on your Apollo. <laughs> what I took away yeah. from that. This next passage blew my mind. When I read this, I literally threw the book across the room. <laughs> I just want to prepare you. <laughs> this takes place in L.A. Yes. This is Pauly. Yes. At night. Yes. Pauly nightlife. It's a short passage. And here it goes. Page 118. They really come out of the woodwork at night, Pauly thought as he left the bar after reaching up a dress, then encountering a mass of flesh quite similar to the one that he used to urinate with. What? Uh, Should I read that again? Please read that again. What is this Uh, implying? They really come out of the woodwork at night, Polly thought, as he left the bar after reaching up a dress and encountering a mass of flesh quite similar to the one he used to urinate with. So, 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 okay, am I just crazy? Like, he has a transgendered prostitute? He had an experience where he thought he was reaching up the dress of a lady, and it turned out to be a man. Or at least a trans person, let's be politically correct. Or a trans person, yes. Yeah, so he sexually assaulted a trans person. I mean, is that implied? Just from the reaching up the dress, it just... Didn't say he didn't enjoy himself. Deleted scene, guys. This is why you read the novelization. (laughs) I'm telling you. Wow. That's like... So, when you're reading this, I'm thinking like, oh, are these novelizations mostly for kids? Because I feel like they usually are. I mean, I don't know if this one is... There you have the Rocky 3 episode. Now, let me just remind everybody, you're not listening to the entirety of Book Club for each episode. I'm just selecting certain passages. So make sure that you go back and listen to the entirety of these episodes and the rest of my episodes to seek out Book Club and listen to the entire segment. Again, I have truncated these Book Club's readings and just whittled them down to some of my favorites. Next up on Book Club Clip Show, Alien 3, with special guests, Dr. Chris Podcasts, and Nico. I think this is one of my favorite clips. So this is the Alien 3 novelization by Alan Dean Foster. If you want to know a little bit about the author, Alan Dean Foster is the acclaimed author of movie tie-ins for Star Wars and Transformers, as well as the Alien series, and was awarded the IAMTW Grandmaster Scribe Award in 2008. He is also a best-selling science fiction and fantasy author in his own right, and has written the popular Pip and the Flinix novels and the Founding of the Commonwealth series. Oh, of course. I love those. No, I don't. So that's who we're dealing with. I've learned from previous episodes to sort of narrow this down beforehand. Much appreciated. No, basically what I'm going to do is read a few passages from the book, and we'll see if it helps understand what's been going on here. I mean, it's not even from... that's. I'm going to read most of what is from Ripley's perspective. This is basically told through the eyes of Clemens, the doctor, Andrews, the warden, and Aaron's, the second in charge. Like, that is whose story... 
the book is. So I tried to go through and find all the best Ripley parts for us. Honestly, I kind of like that, especially if, if it, I'd like it more if it was like entirely about monks, but like this idea of these isolated people and this complete alien, basically a woman to them would be an alien creature, comes in and just brings stuff that fucks up their entire way of life. And like one person just kind of telling the story and being like, yep, that happened. That's actually kind of cool. Holy shit, and she is an alien. She crash lands on their planet and brings about their devastation. Mm -hmm. What's the problem, though, is that the guy telling the story dies, and then the next guy telling the story <laughs> dies, and then the next guy dies. So, like, it, it, like, hands it off to the next guy. I love that, and I wish it was, like, more of a connected strand through the novelization, which I'm assuming it's not. But, like, how all H.P. Lovecraft stories end with, like, the person writing a letter, right, as, like, oh, no, I can hear it. It is outside of my door right now. Like, <laughs> it's just, hey, what do I hear? tap tapping on my window and it just cuts off and it picks up to the next person like I found this bloody diary time to continue the writing about what happened when this woman landed on our prison planet I am the recorder now it is my job you know what I mean in that like in that apostles to to Joan of Arc that would have been cool <laughs> if only Alan Dean Foster had gone in that direction. Well, and he actually wrote the, he wrote the classic Star Wars novelizations, if I'm not losing my mind, right? And those are the ones that, like, go a little bit off book and then are later adapted into those super creepy, intense, terrifying, insane audio dramas by the BBC. This actually had an audiobook version Ooh. read by Lance Hedrickson. Oh, that's so hot. I love him so much. He's so great. So. so this guy is actually kind of famous for inserting huge chunks of canon that he got by speaking to the creator. So, you know, we're talking about a guy who is kind of known for inserting canon. Well, he definitely tried to flesh this out the best he could. There's a whole thread in this novelization about hypersleep nightmares, which is really cool. The, uh, the fact that you can't wake up from hypersleep, so if you have a nightmare, it can last like an entire year. Oh, Jesus. Oh, my God. Uh, that, you know, you can't control your dreams when you're under and all that kind of thing. And then she has several nightmares throughout the book where she's, like, hallucinating the alien. We get, like, a very small scene of that in the movie where she thinks she sees it and it's actually just like a pipe or something. But he definitely tries in his way. Here's another passage. This is when Clemens, the doctor, is killed by the alien in the infirmary, and she is witnessing it. Page 152. Even as she fought to make her paralyzed vocal cords function, part of her noted that it was slightly different in appearance than every alien type she had encountered previously. The head was fuller, the body more massive, the more subtle physical discrepancies registered as brief observational ticks in the frozen instant of horror. Clemens leaned toward her, suddenly more than merely concerned. Hey, what's wrong? You look like you're having trouble breathing. I can... The alien ripped his head off and flung it aside. She still didn't scream. She wanted to. She tried, but she couldn't. Her diaphragm pushed air, but no sound. It shoved Clemens' spurting corpse aside and gazed down at her. If only it had eyes, a part of her thought, instead of visual perceptors as yet unstudied. No matter how horrible their bloodshot, at least you could connect with an eye. The windows of the soul, she read somewhere. The alien had no eyes and, quite likely, no soul. Jesus Christ. Hath not a xenomorph eyes? If you stab us, do we not bleed acid? It needed to talk, right? It needed to say, Ripley. No, it needed to open its mouth, and the little mouth needed to go, Ripley. <laughs> <laughs> you nailed it. Oh, that's perfect. Oh, this movie stinks. You know, thank you for making this a whole lot more fun than I ever would have thought talking about this movie could be. Yeah. I've got two more. The last one is a real doozy, so let's get through this. This is Ripley thinking about the alien, or thinking about her relationship with the alien. Do I want to take that extra step? Do we want to just commit? Should I meet his parents? <laughs> Page 159. Ripley took up a seat in a corner and lit a narco stick. She found herself remembering Clemens, her expression hardened. Clemens, better not to think of him, just as she'd learned to quickly forget other men with whom she'd form attachments, only to have them snatched away and destroyed by other representatives of the seemingly indestructive alien horde. Except that they were not indestructible, they could be killed, and so long as she was alive, that seemed to be her destiny, to wipe them out, to eliminate them from the face of the universe. It was a calling she would gladly, oh so gladly, have bequeathed to another. Why her? It was a question she had pondered on more than one occasion. Why should she have been singled out? No, she reflected. That wasn't right. Nothing was singling her out. 
fate hadn't chosen her to deal with a lifetime of horror and devastation, others had confronted the aliens and perished. Only she continued to suffer because only she continued to survive. It was a destiny she could abandon at any time. No. Boo. Feed her to the aliens. I guess that's supposed to be foreshadowing or whatever. Here, this line here. She'd formed attachments only to have them snatched away and destroyed by other representatives of the seemingly indestructive alien horde. Like, that feels to me more like an abusive ex kind of thing or something. I don't know, where it's like every time she thinks she's got something, this this alien shows up and fucking ruins her life again and (laughs) insists on being the dominant penis in her life. I mean, yeah. Nico drinking game time. Um, I made a reference Golden Girls. There's an episode of Golden Girls where they're all trying out for a community theater production and they're talking about the actress that always gets the role and she's like 40 years old and they're saying how maybe she's getting a little too old for some of the roles they're casting her in. And B. Arthur's character Dorothy says, oh, like last year when she played Anne Frank, <laughs> the entire second act, people just kept shouting, she's in the <laughs> attic, she's in the attic. Was it a community theater production of Alien? That's kind of how I feel about Ripley in this book. By the way, I would really enjoy the diary of, like, Ripley Frank, where she's, like, hiding from, like, xenomorphs, like, with, like, you know, like, the Nazi armband and stuff, and, like, make a really interesting commentary where xenomorphs are Nazis. That's a very simple mod for Alien Isolation. (laughs) It really is. Considering that game is entirely about hiding in closets from xenomorphs. Well, this does feel like she should have been seen writing in a diary during the movie at some point, at least trying to keep a log or a record of what's happening to her. You would think that if she has suspicions that something's inside her, or she wants to at least leave a message to a warning to someone whoever comes next, you know, like people sort of scrawl on the prison walls or roll up messages in the wall for the next prisoner to find or whatever like that but there's none of that in the movie so it's just weird that not that she's writing it down in the book but that it sounds like a dear diary segment captain blog okay so guys final passage and then you're free to go but i guarantee it'll all have been worth it this is kind of a gem this happened in the rocky three book too this is what makes it all worthwhile for me basically is finding something like this in here oh god i'm really hoping you're saying there were aliens in the rocky three book because i'm like i've seen rocky three and i don't remember the aliens but i'm really that's really how mickey excited. died when burst out of his chest just that there's a moment in the novelization that just perfectly encapsulates a character or a moment or a theme that was talked about but isn't exactly crystal clear. In this case, we have been talking about it, and it is sort of clear, but it is never really said out loud. They do try to rape Ripley in the movie, but you never hear her talk about the alien raping her, but we're about to hear that in the novelization in page 219. He gazed down at her. Still sounds like bullshit to me. If you got this thing inside you, how'd it get there? She was staring down at her hands. Well, I was in deep sleep. I guess the horrible dream I had wasn't exactly a dream. I got raped. Though I don't know that that's a wholly accurate term. Rape is an act of premeditated violence. This was an act of procreation, even if my participation wasn't voluntary. We would call it rape, but I doubt that the creature would. It would probably find the concept, well, alien. She looked thoughtfully, thinking back. Oh, no. Oh my god, I literally yeah. was slack-jawed. Um, uh, um... Uh. Yeah, so that's why I go the extra mile <laughs> and read these fucking things. This book, by the way, 248 pages, and that's basically the only passage worth reading. I, you know, she actually, I think the line in the movie is just, it must have happened while I was in cryosleep. I seriously think that's the line in the movie, and it does bring up the question of amorality versus immorality. Right? It brings up the argument that to the alien, that is just procreation. But number one, I roll at, I guess they would call it alien. And I'm just imagining all of these like xenomorphs sitting around a coffee table going, yes, well, they were trying to tell me that when I inserted my baby into them, that it was not okay. And the other one is like, I've never heard of such a daft thing. No, you should be absolutely welcome to procreate with whomever, this rape notion. (laughs) And then she thought, like, she said thoughtfully. Like, that use of thoughtfully almost makes it sound like she's just sitting back thinking about her rape dream. What the fuck? Well, it brings me to what I really want to see about aliens is they need to start talking. I mean, if you really want to shock the audience and take this shit to the next level. Like the Airbud franchise. Yeah, they should all start talking like the Airbud franchise. A talking alien? That was.
was the Alien 3 episode, and now on to the Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome episode with none other than Late Night Brian Rodriguez and Caragel O'Regan. You'll hear me say this, and I just want to reiterate, I think the Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome novelization is truly a good book. This book, it was pretty great, believe it or not. Like, I'm a little uh, beside myself, maybe because most of these novelizations are bad, but I burned through this one. Like, I thought this one was awesome. I really liked how it expanded on the movie, and really looking forward to sharing a few quick passages with everybody here. I hope you are ready. This book was 219 pages, Hmm. and it was written by Joan D. Vinge. She did a really great job writing this book. Question. How many of the novelizations that you've read have been by women? This is the only one so far. Curious that it's the best one. (laughs) She's written 95 books. Wow. Wow. It was very good. It's a very good read. Someone even read it on YouTube, so you could go on YouTube and listen to someone read it. Oh, cool. I haven't. I've just read it myself. Permit me to read a few passages to you right now. Chapter 1, page 1. I'm starting right here at the top. Ambush in the Desert of Despair. They called it the Desert of Despair. It had had another name, or two, or three, back when there were still maps, and anyone who cared what was written on them. This was the name that stuck, because it still had some meaning. Nothing moved on its mirage-haunted surface for endless miles, except the red, restless sand, creeping grain on grain toward some nameless destination. It had lain unchanged for centuries, millennia, unlike the world around it, which had changed and changed again, until nuclear war had put an end to everything but desolation. Pretty good opening, if you ask me. Sets the scene. So this is the first appearance of Max, which I really liked, um, and have to, you know, read because it's Max. It's what we're here for. Page 7. His brown hair, which he had once kept cut short with almost military precision, was shoulder-length now, streaked with gray at the temples. He was nearing middle-aged, and the life he had led aged a man fast. Two days' growth of stubble stood out on his lean jaw. A white scar slashed starkly across his sun-browned forehead and cheek, angling down over his left eye. The eye itself was a startling blue as the desert sky. He had nearly lost it in the fight. He was still alive. The man who had marked him was They called him Mad Max, if they called him anything. Once he had had a name, just like the blister mountain shimmering in the heat haze behind him, just like everyone else, Max Rokotansky. But that had been half a lifetime ago, before the apocalypse, when names and life itself had still seemed to have some meaning, before his country had been blown to hell along with the rest of the world, before all of humanity had become a victim of its own venality, stupidity, and greed. Max had survived nearly half a lifetime since then, largely because in the depths of his soul, he didn't give a damn whether he lived or died. (laughs) Mad Max. I would have thrown, if I was the author, I would have thrown some of his other nicknames in there, like the Road Warrior and whatever else later on he's called the walker and stuff but yeah in his introduction no uh when i was watching the first one something happened and i was like oh is this how max got so mad is this why he's mad turns out he's mad about a lot of things now is it mad and angry or is it mad in like the commonwealth sense of like crazy a little both yeah i think it's both yeah i think he straddles that fence permanently (laughs) that's fair All right, so I have to read the entrance of Auntie Entity. Yes, yes. On page 28. Max looked up again, startled, as a pair of slender, long-fingered hands parted another curtain of gauze on the far side of the room. A woman stepped through. Not any woman. Auntie Entity. She was not young, but he guessed that she was at least his own age. But her body was firm and taut beneath a calf-length dress of silver metal mesh that left almost nothing to his imagination. Her hair was silver blonde, worn in a hawk's crest cascade, her skin the color of coffee with cream. She wore masses of bracelets and heavy earrings, and, incredibly, high-heeled shoes. Incredibly. (laughs) Good to know. Do you think her heels were incredibly high, or it's a post-apocalyptic situation, it's incredible that somebody's wearing high heels right now? That's how I read it, that she was incredibly wearing high heels. (laughs) 
Like that, it was incredible for her to be wearing them. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's all sandy. Like you can't walk around in those. Yeah, that it is incredible. Because I don't, I don't think they were incredibly high. At least not in the movie. I think. I don't know if we ever see her feet. No. I mean, those have to be pretty strong high heels to support 121 pounds of metal. Yeah, you need to be wearing like at least a wedge. You need like some real support there. This passage is interesting because it gives a bit more history between Entity and Master, like their relationship building Barter Town together. This is on page 61. Master Blaster was out of control. It was hard to remember now that there had been a time when they had worked together as comrades, even friends, forging this town out of chaos, creating something of value, forcing civilization to live again in the middle of this wasteland. She had needed his technical expertise, and he had needed her vision to direct it. They had been the perfect team, but once the dream had been accomplished, once their power was secure, the balance hadn't been enough. He had wanted more, but it was her dream, her vision, her law, her town. Still, she still needed his brain, but she would not let his raging egomania destroy all she had created here. Tonight would be the last time he mocked her rule. I find it curious that it's like the woman who is like, let's work together to build this thing, and it's the man who's like, I'm an egomaniac, give me all the power. I just find that curious. It's interesting. I thought it was interesting here to learn that they built the town together. They didn't just come to power somehow. Good to know. We all got to start somewhere. Little background. So it must be a fairly recent town, right? Well, I guess everything's fairly recent in this apocalypse, so never mind. Yeah. I thought it was cool because she mentions at one point in the movie that the problem, they got to kill someone, but it's kind of like family. And you never really get the sense that they were ever close in the movie. So it's just nice to know that there was a time they were together and then there was like a rift, almost like they were Master Blaster, her and him. And then along Along came the other blaster, I guess, at some point, and he found a muscle, so he was able to rule with, like, a, a stronger fist, I guess. Interesting. I wanted to talk more about, like, there's an interesting passage about the gulag. Like, there's a lot that goes on to Max when he's, like, in the desert there in the gulag. They actually call that part the Devil's Anvil, and it's, like, more of a salt flat in the book at first than just a sand dune and stuff, you know? So, like, it's just hotter and more treacherous of a wasteland that they painted. Okay, on page 101, this is Max drifting through the gulag. Two more days passed, light and darkness, heat and cold, an endless spinning wheel of time, a rack on which a man's body and soul were slowly pulled to pieces. Max no longer had any sense of time, any memory at all. He knew that he had been slowly choking to death on his own swollen tongue forever, that every breath he took had always sent pain shooting through him like a stake driven through his heart, that every stumbling step had always been harder than the last, that the sandstorm would never end. The screaming wind would keep pushing him back with every step forward that he took until eternity. Somewhere along the way, he had died and gone to hell and never even noticed the difference. That's a really good sentence. I wish I could read this whole book to you guys, but (laughs) the show is just too damn long. (laughs) No, go for it. Let's do it. That should be book club. Just you doing audio versions of the entire books. But I just wanted to do some interaction between Max and the children. Okay, so this is on page 134. The children's eyes widened with fascination and wonder. Gazing down at them, he felt a dark wonder stir in his own soul. They were all so young. Suddenly, looking down at them, he felt old. The world that he had been born into, the civilization he had always believed was forever, indestructible, was gone. None of them had even been alive while it still existed. Already, it was only a mirage, a legend, a dream to them. He was a dinosaur, one of a dying breed. His world vanished, and his fate extinction. He's supposed to be how old in this film? I think he's supposed to be in his 40s. So would this be fourth in the chronological thing? I guess technically he does look older. He looks the oldest in this movie. No, I mean, because definitely they're not playing Tom Hardy as the 40-year-old Max. I feel like he would have a lot more wrinkles. Like, even though they did a good job aging him up with the gray hair and everything, like, all that time in the sun without sunscreen or, like, even a hat. That's a good point. You know, it's bad for your skin. That is a really good point, for sure. Somewhere in the book, it says that he has been 20 years since he has seen his wife. So, since she passed away. I don't know if he was, like, 20 or 21 in, in the first movie. Yeah, the timeline's a little iffy, but that's fine. Even Max himself, like, 
is having trouble remembering things in the book. But this is cool. On page 147, this is when he's sort of like sleeping. He mentions in the book that when he's at the crack in the earth with the children, it's the one of the first times that he was able to sleep unguarded. Like he, he wasn't sleeping with one eye open or anything. So he's having like really vivid dreams. And at one point in his dream, he starts to like have memories and stuff. So I thought this was kind of cool. I just wanted to read this passage, page 147. The memories came now, and he couldn't stop them. He had gotten the bastards who'd done it, given them exactly what they deserved, made certain that they would never hurt anyone else again, but it hadn't changed anything, hadn't even mattered by then, because nothing he could do could bring back his wife or his child, not even for a second. His own life had come to an end with theirs, prematurely, while civilization's sanity was still crumbling just before it had committed its own murder. When it had finally blown itself to hell a few weeks later, it had only seemed fitting. He had taken off alone into the wastes, and he had lived there ever since, never knowing why he bothered, never letting himself stop moving for long enough to question his own survival. That's so sad. Yeah. My favorite part of book club is not even the books. It's your experience reading the books and how much they mean to you. You know, like I enjoy your emotion, reading them to me. Like that's, that's my favorite part of book club. I appreciate the audience, believe me. I mean, if no one else is listening, at least you two are right now. (laughs) And there you have the Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome Book Club episode with Brian and Kara. Coming up next, Resident Evil Extinction with Kara and Joey. This was probably by far one of the crazier book clubs, and I really had to, you know, whittle this down to some of the best. But I encourage everyone to go listen to this episode. It was a lot of fun. All these episodes are fun. Go check them out. Third time's a book. Third time's a book. (laughs) So this book's crazy. How long is it? This book is... 353 pages but the movie itself is only like 95 minutes maybe so you got 353 pages of book here which is a lot more book than movie this is a novelization by keith r.a DeCandito, based on the screenplay by paul ws anderson based on capcom's best-selling video game resident evil extinction all bets are off Oh, there's a subtitle to the subtitle. And on the cover, there's a silhouette of Alice, and in the background are the ruins of Las Vegas. All right. Okay, so I guess I'll start with some Alice. We learn several things in this passage about Alice that we don't learn in the movie. I forgot that this one starts off right away with product placement. So not only is it, like, rampant in the film, but it is in the books as well. Oh, yeah. That pristine BMW motorcycle that she is riding through the desert. It's so clean. It's ridiculous. So page 40. The BMW was simply her latest ride. She'd had a chopper, but it washed out during a run-in with some undead back in Ohio. Alice had, of course, taken care of them, but it left her without a vehicle. She had had to walk from Youngstown to the Cleveland suburbs. She avoided going near Columbus. That was her hometown, and to see it now would be just too painful. Before she found the BMW, left on the side of the road, its former owner decapitated and decomposing. Alice had seen no signs of the head, but the body was covered in bite marks, so it probably had been made undead and then killed by beheading. Whoever he was, he had a good taste in bikes. The K-1200 was the biggest, most powerful road bike in production until they stopped producing road bikes or much of anything else. We learned that Alice is from Columbus, Ohio. Crucial information to know. We also learned that her last name is Abernathy. I don't know if that's ever said, and if it is, I totally missed it. And her real name is Janice? I feel like I read that at some point today. She has another alias. Yeah, Janice Prospero. Okay, yeah, and that then that was, like, cut out of the movie. And this was the first Resident Evil movie not to be released in the VHS format. Well, it's a very modern film in that way, then. This book, much like the Superman 3 book, like, explores background characters a lot. And this is someone that's part of the actual convoy. So this is Murph. This is a little bit of his life before the outbreak. Murph hadn't been a trooper long enough to get a pension worth a damn, and he didn't have no skills that nobody could use. His wife hit the road pretty much the minute he turned in his badge and gun. He moved to the city, figuring there'd be jobs in Indianapolis you couldn't get out in Carroll County, moving into some flea trap and taking jobs as a bouncer at a strip club. 
That worked out fine till one of the girls charged him with sexual harassment. What? Murph thought she was crazy, since all he was doing was appreciating her finer qualities, but didn't nobody believe him. So he strangled the little whore and left Indiana for good. Wow, that took a turn. It's like, hey, Kara, you know all that stuff you love about the franchise? Like, let's add a whole bunch of nonsense in here that's going to drive you crazy. Oh, that escalated, like, really quickly. Yikes. Here's a great product placement moment in book. Skipping all the way now to page 134. A little bit of prep for this. So this book is broken up into two halves. Part one is before and after, and part two is fight for survival. Wait, what? So like in part one, every other chapter is like before the outbreak and then after the outbreak. So essentially something that didn't happen in the movie and then part of the movie. And then the second half of the book is basically like all movie stuff that we watched. Okay. There's a lot of weird stuff going on in part one, and a lot of it has to do with Jill Valentine, who's not in this movie, and we learn of her adventures, and she basically cleans up Baltimore. Like, she liberates a convention center from a bunch of squatters with machine guns and things, and she gets a former cop to help her, like, clean up the streets, and it's like she's got her whole mission going on separate from this entire movie and never really sees any of these characters, like, ever again, really. She's just, like, off on her own through most of the book. Uh, And we don't get any of that in the movie. But here is Jill, and I thought this was kind of funny. I just was laughing out loud when I read this part. Page 134, Chapter 10, After. As Jill Valentine drove her Prius through the remains of Baltimore, she found herself without a glimmer of hope. I love that she's driving a Prius. How do you think BMW feels about Jill driving a Prius instead of a BMW? She had been lucky to salvage the Prius, a hybrid gas-electric car, as it got her much further on less gas than the SUV that she'd been in before. True, the SUV had a stronger cage, which made for better protection against scavengers. Oh my god. Whether human, undead, or animal, the world was awash in all three. But with more and more gas stations coming up empty, the Prius made it easier for her to keep moving. Listen, I buy it because I personally drive a Prius, and I forget to get gas all the time. It was a huge problem with my previous car that I would forget to get gas until, like, a pretty dire situation. And now that I have the Prius, it's like, what is gas? And why do I need it all of a sudden? It's fantastic. Also, I feel like the aerodynamic nature of the car makes it that much better for running over zombies. They just roll over top of you the way that it's shaped. I mean, I'm sold on the Prius. Like, it's the car of the apocalypse, basically. (laughs) That should be their tagline. Yeah. So much other stuff happens in this before chapter. I'll just quickly give you some coverage we get the outbreak at the raccoon city wall where it just gets like the wall just gets like overrun and people get out we get the outbreak in san francisco firsthand we actually get a little more of jill when she's like caught by authorities but later released by the fbi it's very kind of useless she's just like being interrogated and they're like okay you're free to go we go to the white house and we actually get a president unnamed but the president is like dealing with the outbreak and the oval office gets infected and like there's a whole lockdown that's the movie i'd like to see and then we get like all this other stuff with alice where a lot of this stuff was cut out of this movie but there's a satellite orbiting the planet that can control her for a certain amount of time whenever it sees her in the book it takes over her she She takes the girl from the second movie, Angie. She has, like, the cure in her. She drives the girl to Detroit and meets Dr. Isaacs, and he has Alice under mind control, and he forces her to shoot the girl in the face. Oh, my God. That's how she dies, and that's why she's not in this movie. And so Alice has this whole thing in the book where it's like, anytime I, I can't be near people because I could potentially be controlled by Isaacs for a period of time. Oh, right. Yeah. That's hammered home a bit more in the book. Jesus. I just want to do Kmart's origin story. I think this was a good passage. This is on page 228. She had been born Dahlia Julia Mancini, and there wasn't a single one of those names she was willing to be called in public. Her friends mostly called her DJ, but she didn't really like that either, since it made her sound like she should be on a radio station or something stupid like that. Ugh. When everything went to hell, she'd been working in a Kmart, and eventually she'd just holed up there, along with the other employees and most of the surviving citizenry of Athens, at least for a while. Eventually everyone died, and there was one old guy who had a heart condition, and as soon as he died, he turned and started biting everyone else. It got worse and worse, but the survivors managed to get the upper hand, mostly thanks to Kmart's gun counter. 
But when it was all over, there was just DJ and four others. Before too long, they all died too, and from stupid stuff. Charlie got a broken leg, Eileen got an abscessed tooth, and both Yvonne and Willie got the flu. None of those should have been fatal, but they were. That left DJ to fend for herself, living off whatever supplies were left in the giant store. When Claire Renfield and her convoy showed up, it was a lifeline that DJ clutched. Yeah, so, like, I wish that this movie, instead of taking place five years later, or, you know, could have taken place five years later, but I want more of that in-between time. Because at the end of the second movie, the outbreak is just reaching the walls, basically, of Raccoon City, and then the Umbrella Corporation is going to sanitize Raccoon City by detonating a nuclear weapon right above it. So, like, I want to know, how does it get from there to around the globe? And, like, how does society break down in the process? That's what's really interesting to me. And also, along the way, all the stupid ways that people die that have nothing to do with the zombie outbreak, you know? Because it's like, when all of our engineered comforts start to fall away, and, you you know, we can't refill our prescriptions and we can't get antibiotics and, you know, we don't have reliable sources of clean water. It's like all of these like return to basic human needs when we can't meet those, like that's how people actually die. And then like the zombie thing too. But like, I'm just really interested in that kind of like in between time that we don't get to see a lot. But I feel like that's better suited to franchises that are not as in your face as this often is. Yeah, that's fair. That's a fair point. Like, I think that's better for, like, a game like The Last of Us or a movie like Maggie or something where it's sort of like a more quiet, contemplative zombie story. There's a lot of things out there that do that sort of... There's the outbreak, sure, but it's also people trying to get by. And, you know, even in a sense, like, A Quiet Place is not zombies, but it's something Mm -hmm. sort of like that, like trying to rebuild, like, a normal sort of life. There's stuff out there that does that. It's just that this is never going to be the franchise that does that. This is like, hey, how do we have, like, crazy zombies running at people where we can kill them with knives? Fair point. There's another one of this background character. It's another one of those, like, crazy, weird backstories. So I find, like, these are always fun. So I'm going to read this one. Page 299. So this is another guy in the convoy. If you had told Chase McAvoy 10 years ago that he'd be hanging off the Eiffel Tower in Vegas shooting at horror movie rejects that had murdered several of his closest friends, they'd have sent you to the rubber room, or at least put you under arrest. He'd been able to do that during his all-too-brief tenure as a county sheriff in Texas. That reign had been brief, ended by a scandal that had been caused by an error in judgment on Chase's part. That error was in thinking that the quarterback on the high school football team wasn't above the law. The state religion in Texas was football, and nobody messed with that. If the quarterback raped and killed one of the cheerleaders, well, that was a tragedy, true, but the state championships were coming up. Chase hadn't seen it that way, and he'd put the quarterback under arrest. Suddenly there were pictures. They'd been photoshopped, but try explaining that to an angry populace who wanted their star quarterback on the field, and besides, that little slut was asking for it, wearing that short skirt and tight sweater. Clear eyes, full hearts, can't lose. (laughs) Oh my god, why? So there's a couple things about that. Like, number one, I like that there's 50 pages left in the book, and they're like, hey, let's add this in here. Like, you know this character that we really haven't talked about ostensibly? Like, let's just give him a crazy backstory about a crazy character who is not even in this world... Like, you just read, like, three sentences about a quarterback. Like, you're reading a background character character. in the life of a background character in a novel that's based on an adaptation. Like, it's just, like, (laughs) to go from this movie to a quarterback, like, a fictional quarterback (laughs) in a Texas town, and then beyond that, like, the cheerleader that he raped and killed, how many degrees removed from the movie that we've been talking about for an hour and a half? Like, what? What? Okay, Resident Evil Extinction. And we come to the final excerpt for today's very special book club clip show. It is none other than Return of the Jedi with my good friend and leaf brother, Kyle Reinfried. Be sure to check out Kyle's show, Foodie Films. There's always more to cut. the main one I wanted to get out though. 
So on a page 114, everybody is sort of pleading with the Ewoks. It feels like a deleted scene, and they're saying, you have to help us. This is why we're here to fight. You know, this is basically what's been going on. This is like right after 3PO tells the story, but before they agree to be part of the tribe and everything and help. There's a little bit more in the book. And you have Han Solo asking for help. You have Leia asking for help. You have Luke trying to explain, like, what the Force is and everything. And then you have Wicket making a speech. Whoa. And he makes this speech, which is crazy. I imagine it's going to be the same as, like, John Belushi in Animal House. Yes, yeah. It kind of does a great... (laughs) (laughs) But it's just amazing because this is the most... Like, it's it's unheard of to think that the Ewoks... Like, this is what's being translated by 3PO, and it's insane. On page 114, Wicked pleads with the elders of his clan. So, let's see. Wicked had been observing these proceedings with increasing concern from the sidelines. On several occasions, it was apparent he was restraining himself with great difficulty from entering the council's discourse. But now he jumped to his feet, paced the width of the hut several times, finally faced the elders, and began his own impassioned speech. Eep, eep, meep, eek, squee! 3PO translated (laughs) for his friends. Honorable elders, we have this night received a perilous, wondrous gift, the gift of freedom, this golden god. Here 3PO paused in his translation just long enough to savor the moment, then went on. This golden god, whose return to us has been prophesied since the first tree, tells us now he will not be our master, tells us we are free to choose as we will, that we must choose, as all living things must choose their own destiny. He has come, honorable elders, and he will go. No longer may we be slaves to his divine guidance. We are free. Yet how must we comport ourselves? Is an Ewok's love of the wood any less because he can leave it? No, his love is more because he can leave it, yet he stays. So is it with his voice of the Golden Ones. We can close our eyes, yet we listen. His friends will tell us of a force, a great living spirit, of which we are all a part. Even as the leaves are things separate, yet part of the tree. We know this spirit, honorable elders, though we call it not the force. The friends of the Golden One tell us this force is in great jeopardy, here and everywhere, when the fire reaches the forest. Who is safe? Not even the great tree of which all things are part, nor its leaves, nor its roots, nor its birds. All are in peril, forever and ever. It is a brave thing to confront such a fire, honorable elders. Many will die. That the forest lives on. But the Ewoks are brave. The little bear creature fixed his gaze on the others in the hut. Not a word was spoken. Nonetheless, the communication was intense. After a minute like this, he concluded his statement. Honorable elders, we must aid this noble party, not less for the trees, but more for the sake of the leaves on the trees. These rebels are like Ewoks, who are like the leaves, battered by the wind, eaten without thought by the tumult of locusts that inhabit the world. Yet do we throw ourselves on smoldering fires that any other may know the warmth of light? Yet do we make a soft bed of ourselves? that another may know rest? Yet do we swirl in the wind that assails us to send the fear of chaos into the hearts of our enemies? Yet do we change color even as the season calls upon us to change? So must we help our leaf brothers, these rebels, for so has come a season of change upon us. Jeez. Pretty intense, right? Yeah. Pretty intense. What's the last, like, few sentences of this book? In a while, the two droids sidled over as well to stand beside their dearest comrades. The fuzzy Ewoks continued in wild jubilation far into the night, while the small company of gallant adventurers watched on from the sidelines. For an effervescent moment, looking into the bonfire, Luke thought he saw faces dancing. Yoda, Ben, was it his father? He drew away from his companions to try to see what the faces were saying. They were ephemeral and spoke only to the shadows of the flames, and then disappeared altogether. It gave Luke a momentary sadness, but then Leia took his hand and drew him back close to her and to the others, back into their circle of warmth and camaraderie and love. The Empire was dead. Long live the Alliance. So it's like faces in a fire, not Yeah, they're not ghosts. they're not forced ghosts. He's it's more haunting. He's looking into the bonfire and sees them almost getting lost in the fire, but Leia's bringing him back. Yeah, into their warmth, but then he leaves their warmth and... He goes and lives on a very wet, cold rock for a really long time. But we have to remember, we didn't see him build up his academy and all the success that he had before the grand failure. You know what I'm saying? So, like, they probably had a good 20 years of nice times, some barbecues, 
couple picnics, maybe some trips to like Cloud City together, some reunions. Luke go back to the farm and give Aunt, Aunt Beru and Uncle Owen a proper burial, that kind of thing. Like show Leia, like this is where I grew up. And then Leia like, well, I'd love to show you where I grew up, but like our dad blew the fucking shit out of our planet. So like, <laughs> there's no way to show you that. Technically targeted. Technically, yeah, I suppose you're right. It was Invader's defense. That's going to do it for this very special episode of Third Time's a Charm Book Club Clip Show. I want to thank all my guests that allowed me to torture them with this segment, so please check out all their shows on cageclub.me. Let's see. Caragale O'Regan over on Wistful Thinking. Brian Late Night Rodriguez over on High School Slumber Party. Kyle Reinfried over on Foodie Films. Brian and Kyle both together as the Hoff Bros on P.S. I Love Hoffman and P.S. I Still Love Hoffman. Catch me and Joey, the Podfather, on all the shows we do together from Cage Club, Keanu Club, Watch the Throne, Cinemakers, Tom Tom Club, Cruise Club, and Hanks for the Memories. All his movies, the Shia LaBeouf podcast. Joey and I have done a lot of shows. Please check them all out. Check out Joey's shows that he does with Joe, too. He's got the juicy shows with all the boys over there for Channing Tatum podcast, the Ryan Gosling podcast, and, of course, the premier podcast of the network, Too Fast, Too Forever, where Joey and Joe, too, are watching the Fast and Furious franchise forever. That's right, forever. Catch Dr. Chris podcasts and Nico as they are still going through the hits, hit after hit, over on Now and Again, and Nico in the comic book corner of the Cage Club Podcast Network with the multitude of shows that he is doing over there. Let's see, the HTML, that's great, and the X is for podcast. So make sure you check out everything that this network has to offer. So for all the past episodes of Third Time's a Charm and all the full book club segments from those shows that I've pulled for this special clip show episode, go to cageclub.me check out this show all the back episodes all the other 25 shows on the network go to facebook.com slash cage club and cage club pod on twitter and instagram where you can follow the show and stay up to date and see all the episodes that are coming out uh, you can also at cageclub.me our website you could find links to our threadless shop where you could dress like us or the patreon page where you can donate and possibly control what we watch in the future be a real cage clubber do that kind of stuff or just drop me a line at 3 at cageclub.me. That's T-H-R-E-E at cageclub.me. Find the show on iTunes, Stitcher, and wherever podcasts live online. And until next time, I'm Mike Manzi. Three, that's a magic number. Three. Yes, it is. It's the magic number. Three, Three they stub at me, and that's a magic number. What does it all mean?